Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the movement to elect progressives to the position of chief prosecutors in cities across the country in an effort to curb mass incarceration and bring a real understanding of justice back to our justice system. Before we get started, I have just a couple of thoughts I want you to take with you into today's topic. Uh, this is one of those topics that make people freak out because our current status quo system of police and prosecutors and jails and prisons and all of that, it has been so entrenched for so long that people have a really, really difficult time imagining another way of doing things. And it often comes from a simple status quo bias, just this is how we do things, therefore there's probably a good reason for it. Therefore, I, I, what could we possibly do better? And hey, maybe there are some problems, but maybe that's just a few bad apples and so forth. And so, so sort of revolutionary thinking, trying to completely reframe and rework our justice system scares people because unlike most other political issues, it's dealing uh, with people who are sometimes, certainly not always, but sometimes genuinely dangerous. And it is scary for people to think that if we were to rework the way our system currently functions, would that mean that I personally or my family would be in more real danger? So I get that you know, people have concerns. So with that acknowledgement up front, I would ask that people just be open-minded about the facts and the statistics and ideas of how other countries have gone about this and what results they get. And just to move the Overton window for you a little bit more, like before we even get started, let's go ahead and move the Overton window. I want to point out that there's an entire movement of abolitionists working to completely disband the police and the prison system. We're not talking about that today. We, I think we will talk about that soon, but baby steps, right? So keep in mind that what you're hearing is not radically progressive, revolutionarily minded policy proposals. What we're talking about today is like the baby step. This is just the simple, thoughtful modernization of a completely broken and backward system. Today, we're just doing some trimming around the edges. These are the common sense reforms that should be obvious to anyone. Uh, so I, I urge you to not freak out. And if you uh, have the urge to freak out, just hold that until we start talking about abolishing prison altogether. So with that, just a quick reminder that if you'd like to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We're in particular need of new members right now, so if you get value out of this show, if you learn new things from it, if it pushes you out of your comfort zone and makes you think about things in a new way— as today's episode may do, and you have a few bucks a month available to help us produce it, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, onto the show. Clips today come from Criminal Injustice, Justice in America, The Young Turks, On the Media, and a TED Talk from Shannon Silva. Why don't you go back with me to 2014? 
2014, to the deaths of Michael Brown in St. Louis County, Missouri, to Tamir Rice in Cleveland, to the cover-up of the videotape of the killing of Laquan McDonald in Chicago in that same time period. All of these cases were handled by veteran prosecutors in very safe seats. Bob McCulloch in St. Louis, Tim McGinty in Cleveland, Anita Alvarez in Chicago. And they all had long records as law and order prosecutors and were really considered beyond any political challenge. And of course, they handled these police shooting cases just as you would expect back then. McCulloch used his grand jury in unusual ways to avoid an indictment of the officer who was involved. McGinty did the same thing in Cleveland, and Alvarez was part of the city leadership that helped withhold the videotape of McDonald's death until a court finally forced that tape into public view. Those prosecutors are all gone now. They've all been replaced by far more progressive prosecutors who have pledged to do things much differently, to be fairer, to be more transparent, to address racial disparities in the system, and to reduce reliance on incarceration that has infected the criminal justice system for so long. Here's some audio I want you to hear. This is Kim Fox. She's the new state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois. She replaced Anita Alvarez. She's speaking at the City Club of Chicago in this audio. The original is from video that was produced by the Chicago Sun-Times. Take a listen. We know uh, that prosecution, the criminal justice system, is a human endeavor and is subject uh, to getting it wrong. And I think for many people who believed for a long time that there was an unwillingness to right past wrongs, um, that there is such a willingness. So I think it speaks to the credibility of the legitimacy of the work that we're doing, and that means a lot. These prosecutors have a lot of company. All of a sudden, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia might be the most surprising new DA in the country, former defense attorney and civil rights lawyer, more accustomed to suing the police than working together with them, as a DA usually does. Much of the public in our largest cities has simply said, enough with the tough-on-crime, win-at-all-cost ways of the past. We want reform, and we know prosecutors have to help drive that reform. I've watched you guys build this just incredible infrastructure and this incredible movement, this movement base around um, prosecutor races. And and you've had a serious impact in a lot of places. I, I was hoping you could talk about some of the successful races that you've been involved in and which to you stand out as the most important. Yeah. So the first race we ever got into was um, in Chicago. And that race for us was um, incredibly important because it really spoke to what I just talked about before around the incentive structure. We had been going after Anita Alvarez, the former state's attorney in Cook County, for a number of years. Um, the Innocence Project had called us in when she was ignoring DNA evidence of 10 Black men who were convicted of a crime when um, 
They were uh, youth and DNA evidence exonerated them. She was ignoring the DNA evidence. The Innocence Project called us in. We were running all these campaigns. We ran radio ads. She eventually, once we started running the radio ads, dealt with the, the DNA evidence. But up until that point, you know, it was off. And it goes back to that question of whack-a-mole. We couldn't keep running a campaign every time Anita Alvarez did something wrong. And so when the video around Laquan McDonald became really public and our allies and partners and collaborators on the ground were mobilizing, um, there was just a lot of conversation about what could we do about going after the district attorney. And we talked to our lawyers and they told us that we needed to build out a political action committee, which we did. But what we wanted to be able to do is how could we make this real for everyday Black folks? Could we give people the ability to not just watch us take out Anita Alvarez because there was a lot of TV ads or because there were, um, there was a lot of paid mail, um, but how could they actually participate in engaging voters directly? And we invited our members into doing peer-to-peer text messaging, which was kind of a new thing. Really, the only folks that were doing at the time was, was with any real impact was the Bernie Sanders campaign. And we invited our members in. We bought access to Black folks' cell phone numbers. We cross-tabbed it with the voter files to find the right level of of registered voter. And then we had our members start communicating Mm -hmm. through a platform, educating folks, having to answer questions about what does a state's attorney actually do? Mm -hmm. And in the process, deeply engaging um, voters, building energy and After that win, where um, Kim Fox was able to beat um, Anita Alvarez under a larger kind of campaign around Buy Anita, which was like a cultural campaign that we built technology and platform around that was really powered by young Black folks on the ground um, and young Black organizations like Asada's Daughter and BYP 100 and others, we were able to um, really have the energy to, to pick a number of other places. And so we, we engaged in Orlando deeply and did um, a lot of voter contact work with our partners at Faith in Action and, um, and Florida New Majority. And then we engaged in Houston. And that was just a really big place to engage in Texas Organizing Project, which is just an, an incredibly uh, sophisticated local organization um, that was really trying to move into doing more criminal justice work, was a, a really solid partner. And we did everything from show up to the former district attorney's offices with campaigns and petitions demanding that she quit, while also doing the deep voter contact work um, of engaging voters, educating voters, and moving them up the ladder of engagement. Mm-hmm. All of that work for me is just incredibly exciting because what we helped people do was see their own power in a situation where they felt hopeless, like there was no possibility for change. Communities banded together and put district attorneys in office that was going to be accountable to them. And it doesn't mean that everything changes overnight. But what it does mean is that when someone knows that you put them in office, they also know that, that you can take them out. And that type of power, when leveraged appropriately, is the type of power that gives us the ability to change the rules. It's why elections matter. Right. We've moved all of that work, right? And then, you know, I'll leave it here. But really, in 2017, being able to engage in Philadelphia and help with a whole set of partners elect uh, Larry Krasner. And, you know, Larry Krasner was not the sort of initial typical choice in people's minds. I had to spend a lot of time going on black radio in Philadelphia explaining why we were supporting the white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But Larry's record and his commitment 
really inspired our members. And the level of participation and engagement we got from volunteers to do that contact work, and now what DA Krasner is now delivering on in Philadelphia, um, really speaks um, to why I think it was so appropriate and correct and smart of us to really pivot this work to focus on district attorneys, which are the most powerful actors in our criminal justice system. There's a guy named Larry Krasner. Uh, he ran for DA in Philadelphia. And... Um, and a lot of progressive groups supported him. Uh, I want to give uh, the Real Justice Pack a lot of credit here. Uh, Sean King is involved in that. A number of Bernie alumni are involved in that. Uh, and and they put uh, forward a big fight. But so did a lot of other group, great groups, OurRevolutionMoveOn.org, uh, and the list goes on. And so progressives came out and fought for Krasner because he had a bold progressive uh, uh, policy agenda. And it was no question it was bold. But we've heard people uh, say that they're going to be bold when they get into office. And lo and behold, it turns out that they are not. So now Krasner is in office, so let's find out what he's up to. Well, Slate reports, now two months into his term, DA Krasner is virtually undistinguishable from candidate Krasner. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. (laughs) Now we're in the ballgame. Now we got a progressive, let's see what he can do. in. It, to change the broken system. I love this. I think this is a tipping point. Because when we actually don't have to beg politicians to pretend to be progressive, they actually are progressive. It could make a world of difference. So let's get to it. Since January, he has told his attorneys not to seek cash bail for 25 charges, dropped 51 marijuana charges in mass, joined the mayor in pushing for Philadelphia to become the first US city to open a safe injection site, a clinic where people can inject drugs under nurse supervision and receive addiction treatment if they choose. And he's suing 10 pharmaceutical companies alleging their marketing methods have fueled the opioid crisis. So immediately, right out of the gate, not playing around. He said, I'm gonna reduce mass incarceration and I was not joking. I know what conservatives say, conservatives say, oh my God, the safe injection slides, oh, you're gonna encourage drugs. Well, the studies show the opposite. We're actually likely to reduce the amount of drugs taken in the city. And by the way, I don't give a damn what conservatives say. They're not the ones who put me in office, the voters put me in office. I said I was gonna do these things and I'm doing them. I love it, that's a wonderful start. Wait till you get to see what he just announced. But I wanna also point out, he got into office and immediately, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner ousted 31 members of the office on Friday. That was when he first got in. A dramatic shakeup and the first major staffing decision announced by the city's new top prosecutor just three days after he was sworn in. That's the Inquirer in Philly reporting that. You see, when you fire 31 guys three days in, from then on, when you send a memo, people pay attention. So now that he's got their attention, he does send a memo. Um, and the memo explains that these policies are an effort to end mass incarceration and bring balance back into sentencing. Um, so uh, how is he going to do that? The most significant and groundbreaking reform is how he has instructed assistant district attorneys to wield their most powerful tool, plea offers. 
Over 90% of criminal cases nationwide are decided in plea bargains, a system which has been broken beyond repair by mandatory minimum sentences and standardized prosecutorial excess. In, about, in an about face from how these transactions typically work, Krasner's 300 lawyers are to start many plea offers at the low end of sentencing guidelines. For most nonviolent and non-sexual crimes or economic crimes below $50,000 threshold, Krasner's lawyers are now to offer defendants sentences below the bottom end of the state's guidelines. So it's a topsy-turvy world. I've been covering politics for over 20 years now. And Democrats almost never do what they said they were gonna do. So this is a wonderful turn of events. He said, no, I'm not gonna do change around the edges. I promised you big change and I'm gonna give you big change. We're locking up too many people on nonsense charges, including marijuana charges and prostitution charges. Well, I'm not gonna do that. Every prosecutor in the country thinks it's a big tough guy move to charge the maximum. He said, well, we're not gonna do that. If you wanna lower incarceration and wanna fix this broken justice system, we're gonna do the minimum, not the maximum. On these low-level crimes, and by the way, if you got arrested on a low-level crime and you're middle class or rich, you can just do cash bail and you're out. Uh, well, but if you're poor, even if it was a low-level crime, and we don't even know that you did it, you sit in jail for months, I'm ending cash bail. That was the previous story, we covered that on the Young Turks. I alluded to it in the beginning, that's already wonderful. Now on top of that, he's saying, I'm not going to charge you with heavier crimes than a guy who stole more than $50,000. We've gotten used to this insane broken system where the rich who steal a tremendous amount of money get no prosecution. But if you're poor, you're crushed. Krasner says we're gonna flip it. We're actually gonna be progressives. In fact, he says, if prosecutors wanna use their discretion to deviate from these guidelines, say if a person has a particularly troubling rap sheet, Krasner must personally sign off. So in the past, if you wanted to go below the maximum, you needed to get a sign off from the district attorney. In this case, he's saying if you wanna go past the minimum, you're gonna need to get me to sign off. And by the way, there'll be plenty of cases where they will go past it because there'll be serious crimes and Krasner will sign off on it. But he wants to make sure that they're serious crimes and we're not wasting the taxpayer money and we're not locking up people and ruining their lives if we don't have to and ruining the community as well. Now, one of the reasons he does this is because Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in particular are it were for no reason at all when they were perfectly blue places for Pennsylvania overall, but certainly the city of Philadelphia had bought into this mass incarceration nonsense and had gotten to be some of the worst offenders of this problem in the whole country. Let me give you that background. The United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. It has increased 500% over a few decades. Pennsylvania and Philadelphia have been incarcerating at an even higher rate than comparable US states and cities for decades. A 700% increase over the same few decades in Pennsylvania. And Philadelphia in recent years has been the most incarcerated of the 10 largest cities. Yet Pennsylvania and Philadelphia are not safer as a result. Due to wasting resources and corrections, rather than investing in other measures that reduce crime. So another important part of this is, he says, look, we wanna prevent crime. Our job is to bring crime down. If you spend all of your money on incarceration, especially on people who either don't deserve it or that is not a good use of our resources, then we can't spend it on actually doing crime prevention. These are obvious and logical, but our system was so broken that obvious 
policies would never be implemented until now. This is a tipping point, friends. So, Memo explains Pennsylvania's and Philadelphia's over incarceration have bankrupted investment in policing, public education, medical treatment of addiction, job training, and economic development, which prevent crime more effectively than money invested in corrections. Now, uh, he's not done yet. This guy is on a war path, and again, it's refreshing to be able to say that about a progressive who's already in office. Krasner's lawyers are now uh, also to decline charges for marijuana possession, no matter the weight, effectively decriminalizing possession of the drug in the city for all non-federal cases. Sex workers will not be charged with prostitution unless they have more than two priors, in which case they'll be diverted to a specialized court. Um, now, Slate further explains, this is not to say that all the city's criminal justice players are on board with the Krasner experiment. The leader of the local fraternal order of police, John McNesby, is a vocal critic. He recently warned cadets not to listen to the, quote, dangerous and despicable presentation that Krasner gave on the legal and illegal use of service firearms. McNesby's outrage seems to be about a comment Krasner made about using caution when aiming for a suspect's torso and chest. So he told the cops, be careful, don't always shoot to kill. In essence, and the head of the cops is like, how dare you? Why? Because the training is wrong. The training is shoot, 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 never take a risk with your own lives. Here comes a district attorney that says, you know what? I actually care about the lives of my citizens. And so I'm going to protect them. Does this guy look like he's playing? If you're a cop in Philly, you want to test them? You want to go and do an unjustified shooting and see if he prosecutes? My guess is you don't want to test him. He's going to actually look out for the citizens. I know that comes as a shock for police chiefs like McNesby. Well, sad day for you. He's actually making you do your job, which is to protect and to serve and to serve. By the way, he's also increasing funding for policing. You should be happy about that. But of course, they can't see straight because they're used to being above the law. Now, finally, let me get to a last couple of points here. In a move that may have less impact on the lives of defendants, but is very on brand for Krasner, prosecutors must now calculate the amount of money a sentence would cost before recommending it to a judge and argue why the cost is justified. I also love this because it, it, it's all about framing, and it gets you to think about the problems in the right way. In a very serious matter where, for example, 25 years incarceration are sought and is appropriate, state on the record that the cost of the taxpayer is $1,050,000. That's 25 times 42,000, if not more, and explain why you believe that cost is justified. Because we're throwing people away for 25 years without blinking. He's like, look, at the low end, it's 42,000. At the high end, it's $60,000 a year to detain these people. So you want to explain to me why this guy, we, the state, should spend a million dollars incarcerating this guy? When you think about it that way, all of a sudden, uh, they become a little bit more reluctant. And final part of the memo, uh, he writes, the cost of one year of unnecessary incarceration at $42,000 to $60,000 is in the range of the cost of one year's salary for a beginning teacher, a police officer, a firefighter, a social worker, an assistant district attorney, or an addiction counselor. You may use these comparisons on the record. There's a new sheriff in town, his name is Krasner, and he's an actual progressive. So for all those people who fought to get him into office, thank you. 
You fought the good fight and it made all of the difference. And for all the citizens of Philadelphia, hope and help is in fact on the way. I also want to mention Democracy for America that also helped in that endeavor. And finally, for all the other progressive groups that are out there fighting in primaries, guess what? Sometimes you win, and sometimes it makes a giant difference. So let's go get them. The fight has just begun. But it's great to see that now, when we have progressives in office, we too can set the agenda and set a new day in America where we fix this broken justice system. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Babbel's teaching methods and speech recognition technology have been proven to be effective across multiple studies, in addition to my own experience, of course. Uh, Plus, I love to use it as a way to engage my mind in a way that's completely separate from politics. Let's call it a side benefit. You know, we all need to take breaks from the news, but that doesn't mean we have to turn your brain off. Babbel lets me step away from work, but still be learning something Better yet, learning something completely different than what I usually focus on. And lessons are engaging and convenient, lasting only 10 to 15 minutes, and you learn through interactive dialogues so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. For a limited time, listeners can go to babbel.com and get a whole year of access to Babbel for as low as $3.50 a month. Go to babbel.com and select your language to get started today. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Well, you know, I, I think it's it's a couple of things. I think that our community has started to realize over the years, starting in the fallout from the 80s and 90s, when we were ramping up penalties and mandatory prison terms and um, trying to punish our way out of what was going on, on uh, in our neighborhoods. I think what we saw was a burgeoning prison population and no really commensurate benefit from that. We were destroying families. We were creating intergenerational cycles of incarceration. We were fracturing communities. And and I think our community now realizes it just hasn't worked. And it's really hard to find anyone who doesn't know a friend, a family, a loved one, a neighbor who's been part of the justice system. And they've seen firsthand, they've been proximate to the damage that we've done. So I think there's a growing understanding. There's growing data around what hasn't worked. There's growing proximity to it. And I think for those who have watched the fiscal implications, it's it's created a bipartisan alliance around the need for change. Many have looked at it from a fiscal standpoint and realized we were throwing good money after bad and that we really haven't made communities safer All we've done is filled our prisons and jails in ways that have put us on a pathway that is an outlier from any other country in the world. And and that just really doesn't make sense. That is so true. You know, people will say sometimes, well, these folks who are interested in reform now, it's only about money, as if that's not legitimate. Um, And it certainly is different than just uh, the the pure idea of we need to reform this because it's unjust. But the idea that you would have a confluence of right and left around things like mass incarceration and prosecution now – 
I think really does show you how distinctive our moment is. And you just can't keep doing the same things and expecting different or better results. We haven't made anybody safer. We haven't made our communities better. And people on both sides are kind of recognizing that now all over the place. So your report, uh, the 21 principles for the 21st century prosecutor, um, I see uh, two broad categories here, principles about reducing incarceration, and then there are principles for increasing fairness. Let's, let's take the first one, reducing incarceration, because I think what a lot of people might wonder is, well, you know, legislatures in the federal system, Congress and the states, the state legislature, they're the ones who pass the laws and judges give out the sentences. Why is it the job of prosecutors to worry about mass incarceration? Why is it their job to think about this? Well, you know, I I think as a starting point, um, they, for many decades, were part of the problem, and so they need to be part of the solution. Um, They helped create where we are now, and especially elected DAs, elected prosecutors, they have a powerful bully pulpit and an ability to lead in our community and to set a different pathway for criminal justice thinking and reform. And if they oppose it, it often is going to be the death knell for any change. But if they support it, it's an incredibly powerful voice for the need for change. I think they also, we need to recognize, are the gatekeepers. They, at the end of the day, are going to decide whether someone's life will be forever impacted by having been brought into the justice system. They can say no and fundamentally change what our justice system looks like and decide how to be smarter around who we bring into our justice system. And they can be the ones to decide where those scarce resources should be used when we say yes, and when it is that an individual needs to be removed from the community. So I think they've got this powerful job and platform and megaphone that they can use. And the the crux of what we're trying to do is to get them to use that autonomy and that discretion and to get them to try to bring this new approach to how we think about when we avoid doing damage, that, that the criminal justice system essentially does so much collateral damage when it overextends itself, and that if we can reduce the footprint, if we can avoid criminalizing individuals who don't end up returning to our community in any better place, and in fact, impose a greater danger to the community when they come back, that that starting point, at least let's do no harm, can can fundamentally change so much. Absolutely. So as I look at the recommendations about reducing incarceration, it looks like from various points of view, what the document is saying is that the, the point is to keep people in cases out of the system, minimizing their contact with the system. So more diversion, ending cash bail, keeping people with mental health issues and addiction issues out of the system, putting them in treatment. Is that the thrust to really just reduce contact with the system uh, to its lowest possible point? So it, it is, but not um, not formulaically. It, it's to do it in a smart way. You know, it's it's to be more aware of the ripple effect of those decisions, that every single decision about whether to charge or not to charge, not only forever changes the life of that individual, forever. I mean, a criminal conviction means all kinds of things. These days, it often means 
you'll be deported from the country. It means you will probably lose your job. You may well lose your housing. You may well never finish school if you're a young person who's been brought into the justice system. Your life will be destabilized by all of the positive influences that we know keep people from committing crime. So we've got to be smarter and, and we've got to not go into, as, as we both mentioned earlier, sort of that auto response that every single time somebody does something wrong, we can arrest our way out of it because that arrest and that incarceration isn't going to solve the underlying problem. If the individual's struggling, if they need help and support, if they need treatment, putting them into a jail cell is simply going to destabilize them, their family, their community, and then throw them right back into the community at greater risk of repeating the criminal conduct, having done absolutely nothing to attend to the underlying concern. So the starting point on our 21 principles is we need to be smarter. It's not that we never arrest. It's not that we never prosecute, but we recognize we've done it far too often and that we shouldn't be letting the criminal justice system fill a space that public health, that mental health, that social services should be filling. And the longer we keep doing that, we're letting all of those other systems off the hook, that it's cheaper to let them come in and help people. It's safer for our community. It's smarter for the individual. Yeah. It's smarter for the entire community. Yeah. Let me pick up on something you said right at the end there. It's safer for the community. I could see uh, maybe an older, more traditional I don't mean older with age, just a more traditional prosecutor or a constituent of a prosecutor uh, hears this and says, hmm, people are going to be kept out of the system. This is the idea is being smart, but it won't allowing people who would have been charged with crimes, letting them out of the system. Uh, won't they commit crimes while out? Uh, is the, what is the public safety evidence here? Because I think people are going to wonder about that, given the way we've done things for so long. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there has been kind of this brainwashing, essentially, that's gone on. Um, it certainly had happened in the 80s and the 90s that if we don't bring people into the criminal justice system, you know, uh, crime in the streets will run rampant and um, and we will all our lives will be put at risk. And that's right. I think that's a lot of the public reaction because people have been told that. Absolutely. And that's been the fear factor that's yes. driven our mass incarceration and and I think the data and the research just hasn't supported that. I mean, we've seen, you know, for example, on cash bail, we, we've seen states um, that have eliminated cash bail and found a decrease in crime connected to understanding that incarcerating individuals for 24 or 48 hours, just that short period of time through a system that essentially says you're in jail until you can buy your way out. Yes. which is what a cash bail system essentially Absolutely. does. Mm-hmm. Even, even a short period of time, you know, studies by the Arnold Foundation and others have shown us that your criminogenic tendencies, your likelihood to increase crime in the future gets worse for even a short period of time in jail. Right, just a couple of days, that's right. Just a couple of days, just the impact of a couple of days for you to find, you know, the wherewithal, the, scrape the money together to get out of jail. Um, you know, Kentucky eliminated cash bail, eliminated money bail, and saw a decrease in crime. Other states have followed suit. And we've also seen studies that have looked at the fact that incarceration in the justice system is destabilizing. I mean, sometimes it's the right thing to do and it's the appropriate response, 
But when it overreaches, it puts people into a traumatic environment. It causes them to lose all of those positive you know, supports in their lives right. that help stabilize them. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be smarter about it. We have to you know, recognize that that old fear factor just hasn't played out in other countries. In the 80s and 90s, Germany was at the same place we were in terms of rates of incarceration. Is that and right? We went one huh. direction. And we went one direction, and they went the other. I and see. we're going to be bringing some of our group there to see how that's played out there, because they have adopted much more that view of restraint. Let's not criminalize young people. Let's recognize brain science. Let's not embrace the view that we can punish our way out of all of these problems. And they haven't found crime running rampant. Instead, they found the opposite, while we, on the other hand, have paid billions of dollars for a system of corrections and a criminal justice system that really has damaged lives and kept people and their families from being able to find a pathway out of the struggles that they deal with. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Everett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from a salon without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT. There is a narrative that people want, and the narrative goes like this. Larry Krasner. Whenever you have a progressive DA, and that progressive DA hasn't quite cured crime yet, we are going to claim that because your policies are not draconian, uh, something is all your fault. The fact is that since we came into office in the last 18 months, crime is flat, and violent crime overall is down 2 to 3%. Philly Magazine had an opinion headline from last month, The Disastrous Consequences of D.A. Larry Krasner's Reforms. Gun-related violent crime is up in Philadelphia. That was entirely predictable when we elected a district attorney whose primary goal is releasing criminals rather than prosecuting them. Uh, usually Philly Magazine is not the greatest offender. Actually, usually Philly Magazine is pretty friendly, but <laughs> you are certainly going to find individuals and certain publications that are very much coming from the old perspective. So gun-related violent crime isn't up in Philly, or it's not related to your policies? Gun-related violent crime is up in Philly. It has been on a trend up for some time, but it is up. Again, mm-hmm. within the, the overall category of violent crime, that includes gun-related violent crime, Violent crime is down 2 to 3%. I'm looking at the results for today. The number of homicides at this time of year, the year before, 
we were in office, it was 177. And the number now is 178. Mm-hmm. And then by comparison, if you look at the very end of the administration of our most draconian prosecutor, Lynn Abraham, at this time of year, she was at 219. <laughs> These issues are fundamentally structural issues. And the narrative doesn't want to talk about that. The narrative mm-hmm. simply wants to take whatever isolated statistic will support the proposal that sensible modern approaches don't work and push that narrative. And I'm really hoping that, that across the country, people will start to look at a different metric. And that metric is what is the number of future years of incarceration that this administration is generating as compared to the past? Because the real question is not how many people are in jail today. Some of them may be in for a 10-day sentence. Some may be in serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. The real question is when you aggregate the future sentencing, is it coming down? If it's coming down in meaningful, significant ways, then we will get to an end of mass incarceration, regardless of what today's headcount is in the jails. I'm looking, for example, at part one crime reported by the Boston Police Department. On July 6th, the Boston Globe published an article about D.A. Rachel Rollins with the headline, Stopping Injustice or Putting the Public at Risk? Suffolk D.A. Rachel Rollins Tactics Spur Pushback. If you look at January 1 to July 14 of 2018 compared to this year, violent crime is down 9%, according to the Boston Police But if you read anything about me at all and the titles that the media in Boston in particular have been using, like, is she stopping injustice or putting the public at risk? Our media is not particularly diverse. They are writing through a lens of oftentimes privilege and whiteness that they believe they fully understand these communities of color that they, of course, don't actually live in. My lens is very different. I have nieces that are in DCF custody, the Department of Children and Families, as a result of some of the decisions my siblings have made or circumstances they've found themselves in. So I come to the table with not only Harvard Business School and the U.S. Attorney's Office and a DA rotation in a very large firm, but also the sibling of incarcerated people and the guardian of two nieces due to the opioid crisis, mental health issues and our carceral system. So there's a lot of people that say, why is she talking so much about defendants? It proves to me when they make a statement like that, how little they know about the work we actually do. Anyone who's in the homicide unit, in the youth violent task force, or some people call it the gang unit, they understand that these are complicated people that are one day a victim, next day a defendant, possibly even a witness, and we have to treat them with dignity and respect, irrespective of what they are alleged to have done, because the system works for them as well. We tend to assume that when the crime rate rises or falls, it's because of something the police or the court system is doing or not doing. In fact, there's so many other factors that come into play. Emily Bazelon. There's a sociologist at NYU named Pat Sharkey, and he did this huge study, and he found that if you add a nonprofit to a community, you can see a 1% drop in the homicide rate. Any nonprofit? (laughs) Any good nonprofit. And when I was talking about this with Robert Sampson, who's another sociologist, he said, look, imagine a vacant lot where a group of people get together and they form an organization to turn it into a playground. 
you don't think of that as being about preventing shootings. But when you have a playground, you have kids outside, and then you have their parents and other people watching them. You have more foot traffic. You have the sense that this is a vibrant neighborhood where people take care of each other. You can make the community feel like a healthier place, and then it's less likely that it will be crime-ridden. Middle-class and affluent people know this intuitively. This is what we want from our own neighborhoods, and yet we've somehow gotten the idea that poor people are better served by getting arrested all the time. These are long-term problems that require long-term solutions. Larry Krasner. And the notion that any particular police commissioner, mayor, or DA is going to talk tough and beat their chest for a minute, and all of a sudden, crime is going to stop, it's just, it's just a fiction It's a bunch of nonsense. The reality is that the way that we make people safer is by having more money in education and less money in prisons and more money in treatment and more money in economic development and more money in job training. It's by making sure that 16-year-old young men predominantly do not feel that their lives have no value and pick up guns. That's how you do it. And no, I don't have a time machine. I can't actually go back and try to fix all the dumb that was done by this, this you know, predominant prevalent philosophy of locking up everybody for as long as possible. It will take a minute, but we have a minute because we have so many people who are supportive of this notion here and around the country. We had so many people in Philly that, strangely enough, as a complete political unknown, we ended up with more votes than any DA in at least the last 20 years in an election, right? It's coming from somewhere, and it's coming from somewhere in Chicago and and San Francisco a few years ago. There's 15 to 20 very important large jurisdictions that are drivers of mass incarceration where we have progressive DAs being elected who never would have been elected 15 years ago because people have changed in how they see these things. And that was inevitable. When the other side got so good at locking everybody up, the part they were missing is that they were going to be really good at convincing not only the people who got locked up, but their mothers and cousins and friends and bosses that this system is bad. And they did that. They've convinced voters all over the country that this system is bad and that it has to change. We just heard Krasner say that the myth of the savior crime fighter, powerful though he or she may be, is just that, a fairy tale. Saviors need communities to elect them, communities to help catch murderers, communities to ensure that murderers are rare, communities with families needlessly broken up by minimum sentencing, unreachable bail, or parole rules designed to be breached, will tend to be as leery of the criminal justice system as the system is of them. When you read the paper... Check out the underlying narratives, the predictions of doom if that system changes. Fear and the alienation it spawns does not make America safer. It makes it more dangerous. It always has. recall a time when you were really hurt by another person. Maybe physically, maybe they lied to you or broke your trust, maybe they stole something from you or put their interests ahead of yours. In that moment and the weeks and the months following, what was it that you really wanted? 
what would have actually made you feel better? So in years of asking this question to my students, to justice professionals in courtrooms and prisons, and to victims of crime, a handful of people have told me, honestly, it would have made me feel better to key their car. (laughs) But not many. Actually, nearly all of us want the same thing. You want them to look you in the eye, acknowledge what happened, and maybe, if it's genuine, apologize. And you want a chance to explain how they've impacted your life and see them really get it. You want answers to some questions so you can stop trying to figure out how this happened, how you could have protected yourself better, and whether you can trust someone again. It's important to know that these are not things our justice system offers crime victims. In fact, there are all sorts of real and symbolic barriers that prevent people who cause harm from being accountable to the people they hurt. The first thing they hear is, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. In other words, don't apologize and don't take accountability because you might jeopardize your legal case. For crime victims, the most consistent ways to participate in the justice process are a private consultation with the DA or reading a statement during sentencing. You may have no interaction with the offender whatsoever. They may not even be allowed to make eye contact with you in the courtroom. In most states, incarcerated people aren't allowed contact with victims and their family members, even if they both request it. So maybe we could accept some of these failures if our justice system worked in other ways. And by worked, I mean kept people on the outside safe and changed people on the inside for the better. But our justice system utterly fails everyone it touches. Not a surprise, right? In prison, people get hurt instead of helped. And no matter how strict we get, no matter how much control that we exert, 50 to 70 percent of people who leave prison are back within three years. The communities most with the highest rates of incarceration, poor communities of color, actually have more stress, trauma, and mental illness. I could go on and on. But instead, I want to talk to you about restorative justice, a surprising approach that might offer better outcomes for victims, offenders, and the communities they live in. And I want to suggest that in order for it to work, we all have to do our part. Now, restorative justice is not a new idea. Some people say, It's the most common approach to justice across the world and throughout time, but that somewhere along the way, we forgot how to do it. It's a philosophy that says getting justice means repairing harm. In restorative justice, repairing harm happens through face-to-face dialogues between the people harmed and the people responsible. For instance, here in Colorado, hundreds of cases are diverted from the courts each year through restorative conferences that bring together victims, offenders, and affected community members 
to agree on how to repair harms after a property crime or an assault. For example, someone who vandalized a local business might agree to repaint the wall themselves. Someone who uh, caused a car accident might agree to pay the victim's medical bills. And sometimes agreements are symbolic, like writing a letter of apology, doing a service project, or volunteering with the victim's favorite charity. But the goal of these agreements and the whole process is always to meet the needs that were created by the crime and to facilitate direct accountability. I am not saying that restorative justice is the answer to every criminal case or all the complex problems with the criminal justice system. And I want to be clear that victims should always have a choice about if and when they meet someone that harmed them. But what I am saying is that this is a transformative approach that can be used far more often than we may believe. And studies of Colorado's diversion programs show that 95% of both victims and offenders are satisfied with the process and that offenders have a recidivism rate of just 8%. This is a select group of cases, but it's also an enormous difference. And this is what a system designed to keep people safe should be doing healing victims, and preventing harm. So if restorative justice works so well, why isn't it the basis for our current justice system? It's a great question, and it's why I started out my career studying why states, some states were adopting restorative justice into their state codes and others weren't. And I was actually surprised to find that most states have adopted legislation that supports the use of restorative justice in criminal cases, but that these policies are rarely put into practice by prosecutors, judges, and correctional officials. What I learned when I talked with these potential change agents is that they were either skeptical about restorative justice or they just didn't understand how it fit in their roles. In other words, they either don't want to or they don't know how. See, restorative justice, face-to-face dialogue about crime, conflict, pain, suffering, it's incredibly difficult, not just for justice professionals, for all of us. I teach a class on restorative justice, And my first reaction to conflict is to hide in my office and avoid eye contact with my email account. (laughs) I once engineered an elaborate game of phone tag that went on for weeks just by, you know, like calling at the time when you knew the person wouldn't pick up, just to avoid a difficult conversation. (laughs) These are silly little examples of our very serious impulse to hide from the people and the situations that cause us pain. My theory is that isolation is our default response to crime because it's actually our default response to conflict. We block, we ghost, we cancel the people who hurt us, and we overuse prison, not because we actually think it makes things better, but because we're afraid of being hurt and we don't know what else to do. We want accountability, but we don't want to have the hard conversations that it requires. We'd rather believe there's a simple solution that can keep us safe and protect us from pain.
It's easy to feel that mass incarceration is something done to us by politicians, police, prosecutors, and prison guards. But it's important to remember that it's something we invest in each time we build virtual and physical walls between ourselves and others. As a result of our inability to face those we hurt and those who hurt us, we participate, knowingly or unknowingly, in systems of control and isolation. Our policy problem is a people problem. The good news is, restorative justice offers a people solution. It teaches us that what changes our choices is actually not laws. Otherwise, the drug war would be all wrapped up, right? It's actually coming face to face, realizing that we've hurt someone and being willing to make amends. And similarly, if we want to change the criminal justice system, we have to face each other, take responsibility for our roles in mass incarceration, and do what we can to repair the harm. That's why innovative prosecutors, yes, they exist, creative correctional administrators, committed legislators, even researchers like me, are increasingly coming together to have these hard conversations. We're listening to the people who are most impacted, incarcerated people, their families, crime victims and survivors, and we're designing solutions together that we can all agree on. My experience with restorative justice tells me that the solutions we forge together are far more powerful than the ones we hand down from the safety of our courtrooms and our offices. And I believe this is a restorative movement that can transform the way we think about doing justice. But it will take more than those of us working in the justice system to transform it. It will actually take all of us. Because real criminal justice reform will never happen until we face our fear of facing each other. And it's a really hard thing to do, but I know we can do it because I see incredible, courageous examples in my work all the time. Not long ago, I sat at a little round table in the prison visiting area with the wife and the daughter of a man killed in a robbery and the person serving life without parole for his murder. The victim's family brought this little hardbound notebook filled with all their unanswered questions, all the things they wanted to tell this man about their lives and what they had lost. And I watched as they led this beautiful, really heartbreaking, but empowering dialogue. And for six hours, I didn't say a word. I didn't have to. Yes, because we had prepared for this moment for months, but mostly because they had the wisdom. The innate human wisdom to say what needs to be said and to do what needs to be done to further our own healing and that of our communities. And you have that wisdom too. We all have the wisdom and the skill and the compassion to restore ourselves to ourselves, 
not through isolation, but through connection. Thank you. We've just heard clips today, starting with criminal injustice, giving us a quick primer on the old law and order prosecutors who had been targeted and are now out of their jobs. Justice in America spoke with Rashad Robinson of Color of Change about their decision to focus on prosecutor races. The Young Turks spelled out some of the details of the policies Philadelphia's progressive prosecutor has been putting in place. Criminal Injustice then spoke with Miriam Krinsky about the principles progressive prosecutors need to have. On the media demonstrated some of the ways that the old ways of thinking about crime and punishment attempt to discredit modern and thoughtful policies. And finally, we just heard Shannon Silva's TED Talk about the potential of restorative justice. Members this week will hear some more on this topic, including some of the stances taken by Democratic candidates on criminal justice reform. The short version is that Biden and Booker both have terrible records, and they had a debate about which one of them was worse. And Kamala Harris likes to call herself a progressive prosecutor, but her record tells a very different and more nuanced story than that. Plus, a bit of history about society's perspective on prosecutors, defense attorneys, and our ideas about how court cases work in general, which is pretty much not at all uh, related to reality. Not only that, there are great conversations going on with members uh, calling in about all kinds of things, including theories of change we've been discussing and the obvious fact that Mitch McConnell is the Antichrist. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Scott Smith from uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And I just wanted, I was just listening to the latest episode, and I heard Alan from Connecticut talk about medication and and uh prescriptions and whatnot and i just wanted to i know this is kind of anecdotal but just wanted to put in that um my insurance company uh and it's a major united states uh insurance company actually does not allow me to get one of my prescriptions refilled um, i have a like a skin condition and um there's one medicine that works really well for me but they don't cover that anymore and they want me to use medicines that they think are better for me. So if I want to use this one medicine, uh, it's called Topicort. And if I want to use that, um, I have to pay for it myself. And it's a, a few hundred dollars per bottle. So it's this uh, rationing of care and of medications uh, is already going on. So hopefully, if we ever do get to a uh, Medicare for all type system, Maybe I'll be able to get my medicine uh, without having to uh, pay for it out of pocket. I also, uh, I'll tell a quick story. I had a recent problem with a kidney stone, and I will tell anybody who's never had a kidney stone, uh, I don't recommend them. But the pain was excruciating, uh, so much that it woke me up in the middle of the night, caused nausea, and just, I was, a, I was a mess. I went to the ER, I was admitted in the hospital for, and I had an overnight stay. And while I was there, my, my pain was managed by some serious meds that were given by IV every three hours. 
But what my insurance company has said is because I was able to walk around and the meds, uh, again, they were given by IV, they managed my pain. Uh, so my insurance company is denying my claim. And the amount of that claim is uh, $43,000. So an overnight stay and a procedure, the the doctor did the procedure. He went in and grabbed my grabbed that kidney stone, and it cost forty three grand. That doesn't include, of course, the anesthesiologist, which I uh, just got a bill from them for three hundred and some dollars. So anyway, forty three thousand dollars, one overnight stay. Of course, the amount is uh, probably a, a matter for uh, you can probably do a whole episode on how much our first class, best in the world. Um, and I'm saying that facetiously, uh, the best in the world uh, healthcare costs that much for one overnight um, hospital stay. So anyway, the bottom line is, uh, I guess the point that I was trying to get to is that our private insurance system, as I, I know you and probably most of the listeners know that are, it's a mess. Um, and as long as profits are the driving force behind it, it's not going to be fixed. I would also like to add, and I, I'm almost uh, ashamed to say it, but um the same insurance company that covers me uh, is also my employer. Yes, I, I work behind enemy lines during the day and advocate for the elimination of my employer on nights and weekends. Uh, it's quite the dual existence. I'm the Batman of uh, of our times. Or maybe not. Thanks for all you do, Jay. I, I love the show and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Jack from Georgia. Just responding to your comments about uh, David Packman's comments about waning support for progressive media. One thing I want to add, one program I listen to semi-frequently, I won't give the name because I don't want to give any bias, but they mentioned that ideally they want people to give one hour's uh, wage for a contribution each month, which for me is $30 a month, which I feel like, you know, you think it's only one hour to give $30 for one podcast alone is just it's just way too much. So I think another problem is that we just we I mean I, I unfortunately had to stop giving to both yourself and to the one other podcast I give to back in April when I lost my job. Um, I just got a new job so I should be contributing like, again soon. I mean as you said, you know, a, a small percentage of people are actually giving money versus who's actually listening. So um, it's one of those things that until we can get wages up for everybody or, or, or I don't know you know it's just uh, I, I just thought that was worth mentioning and I keep up the good work and I'll be contributing again uh, very soon once I get my first paycheck thanks a lot uh, take care bye Jay Dave from Olympia Washington I am calling in just to specifically thank you for like your voicemail feature I so it's my favorite you're wonderful. You produce a great show, but the voicemail is so good. I, I just adore that it, it allows like a total neo luddite like myself who has no social media presence really <laughs> to um, engage. I love the conversations. I love the depth and the variety of opinions that can be brought out. I love like in this weird very tangent to a tangent way knowing these people from all around the country i love the people that call in i like i don't know aaron i'll probably never meet aaron i find aaron so delightful when she calls in and i'm always excited 
and I'll hear, I'll just, hello, Jay, this. And I'm like, oh, it's V. I, I know, like that. They, they, I recognize people. I love that. Anyhow, thank you. Thank you so much. Stay up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. I have lots of little things to touch on today. Let's see if I can get through them all. First of all, in response to Zach's thoughts on membership and and the idea that he brought up, you know, taken from another show, the idea that, uh, you know, if, if people could donate w- one hour's worth of their work value to a show, then that would be great. And I tend to agree with Zach that that sounds like a lot because, you know, think about it. If you're making minimum wage, uh, you know, the federal minimum wage, whatever it is, seven twenty-five or something horrific like that, or, you know, maybe it's uh, gone up a little bit since then. You know, if you're making that amount of money, then eight bucks is a lot of money. And if you're making more, like Zach is, congratulations on the new job. I'm glad to hear about that. But, you know, if you're making $30 an hour, like, sure, maybe you're doing okay. But all of a sudden, like, 30 bucks to one podcast, that sounds like a lot. But it, it, it does open up a different way of thinking about the value of the things we put value in the thing or the things we get value from like, like podcasts. And you can sort of ask yourself the question, you know, it's, it's usually framed like, you know, donate the value of a cup of coffee a month, you know, five bucks or, you know, whatever it comes out to. But, you know, you can kind of then ask yourself how much work do I need to do to earn the amount of money that this show is worth? So, you know, for, for regular listeners, you know, you get about, 10 hours of content each month from this show, how many hours would you consider working in order to get that? And then you can do your own calculation. Like, okay, you know, I'd work like 15 minutes to get those 10 hours uh, of podcasts. So then, okay, what's, you know, 15 minutes worth to you? You know, you can kind of do that calculation. And, uh, you know, as, as Zach was saying, maybe an hour is too much, but you can you can sort of judge for yourself based on, what you earn and how much value you get from the show. And I don't know, I, I just kind of liked it as a, as a new way. I mean, I, I'm not just a person who receives money for making a podcast. I also donate to podcasts. So it's it's a way of putting into, you know, a new frame for myself. You know, what what are these shows worth to me that I would donate to them? I don't know. I, so I just kind of like that. Um, I, I also wanted to mention as long as we're talking about membership and we're getting sort of towards the end of the month, now's actually a really good time to sign up uh, on Patreon if you're thinking about it, uh, because the quirky thing about Patreon is that everyone gets billed at the first of the month. It doesn't matter when you sign up, you always get billed at the first of the month. So since we're almost at the first of the month, if you sign up now, you get billed you know, relatively quickly and you could start uh, catching up on bonus content and all of that. Whereas if you wait till next month, you know, you have to wait a few weeks before you get billed. It's just that one time quirk uh, when people sign up. So I like to mention, you know, hey, we're at the end. Uh, Now would be a good time. Uh, Secondly, 
we just heard from Dave. Uh, Dave's been catching up on the show. I, I've been hearing from him recently. He, uh, he I guess, he took a break from politics a little bit. So he's been catching up from shows, you know, a couple months ago. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear he, he likes the voicemails. I, I certainly encourage everyone to leave voicemails. I mean, Dave's a nice guy. Make Dave happy. Leave us a voicemail. Tell us what you think. And as I've mentioned recently, I edit them. So I, I think the number one concern about leaving a voicemail, and I can I can understand this myself, uh, hey, hey, like I do this show and I get to edit myself, so I don't have to worry about sounding too dumb. But if you're leaving a voicemail, you think like, oh, no, like what if I sound like an idiot? Don't worry. I edit the voicemails too. So I, I, I try to make it so that no one sounds dumb. I mean, no, no one is actually dumb. But, you know, if you call in and fumble over your words a, bit, a little bit, I'm, I'll clean it up for you. So don't, don't worry about it. And, and then just on this note, because uh, I haven't mentioned it in years probably, just the idea of having a voicemail line. Like if you're, if you're new to the show, it just feels like part of what we do be, and why in the world would we ever not. But I'll just say that, you know, we didn't always have a voicemail line. I did the show for probably three, four years without a voicemail line intended to, you know, have people call in. And the reason I started, came up with a voicemail line idea, was because I needed conversation starters. It was to take the burden off of me of, of having to come up with something to say, like in my final comments at the end of the show. And, you know, to be honest, that's kind of still the case. <laughs> and I have more to say now than I ever did. You got to keep in mind, like I started this show when I was 23 and the best thing I knew about myself and the world when I was 23 was that I didn't know enough about the world to go spouting a whole lot of my own opinions. I, I did my best to pull together good opinions from other people. That's the basis of the show. But I was like, oh, I don't know, like people don't need to hear from me. I'm, I'm not nearly the expert I need to be. And now that I've been doing the show for, I think I'm coming up on my 14th anniversary or something like that. I'd, I'd have to check. It might be 15. Anyway, I feel a lot more confident. I, I have a lot more to say. I have a lot more opinions that I think are worthy of being heard. And I still find myself really appreciating that people call into the voicemail line to kickstart some conversations. Cause, cause, you know, in those instances when we're in a little bit of a voicemail drought and no one's called in, I literally find myself asking Amanda, like, Hey, have I said anything interesting recently? Like, I can't think of anything to say on the show. Have I, have we had like a conversation where I said something intelligent and I could just repeat myself on the show? So the voicemails are great. Dave is not the only one who appreciates them. I appreciate them because they make my job not just more interesting, but uh, easier, <laughs> in fact, because, uh, because I get to have conversations with you instead of just talking at you. Last thing I have for you today, uh, you may recall that at, at the end of last week, I started talking about the polls that we do every week, and I want to get in the habit of just sort of mentioning that these polls exist and what, uh, what the options are. These help choose the topics of the show, and uh, you know, I would love for people to sort of get in the habit of every weekend going and engaging in these polls. So whether you keep up with the show and actually hear the announcement of, of what topics are up for, uh, you know, options on the poll, 
Or, you know, if you fall behind, as I know a lot of you do, I, I certainly do, you know, you, you can know that just if you go to patreon.com slash best of left, uh, you don't have to be a patron. You don't have to pay anything. The poll's open to everyone, but it, it should be there every weekend and you can engage. And so I just want to mention that the winners for the poll uh, this past weekend was design cities and infrastructure for a climate friendly future. So that one is already underway. Uh, research is already being done. And then secondly, we're going to dive into the horrors of the Brazilian rainforest being on fire, the attacks on indigenous people, the fascism of the Brazilian president Bolsonaro, and so on. So the poll happened, people engaged, and you, the listeners, helped decide that those are the topics we're going to be covering. And so I, I just mention it because I would love for ever more people to engage with that um, because it helps me know that you guys actually want to hear the shows that I'm putting together. And, uh, you know, I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants, but, you know, I, I love having the engagement from you guys so that I can give the people what they want. So as I said, that happens every weekend on Patreon. Patreon, it's it's more than just for members. It's It's more than just a donation platform. You can post things there that are public. So yes, that is where you would go to sign up for membership, but that is not what the polls are about. The polls are open to everyone, and it's just a cool feature that Patreon happens to have. So that's where I do it because I use that feature. So check it out on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left every weekend to help guide the decision-making of the show and hear the topics that you actually want to hear. Now, before I go, a quick reminder that today's episode is being supported by Babbel, the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language like Spanish, French, and German quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts and last only 10 to 15 minutes, so they're easy to fit in your schedule. For a limited time, listeners can go to babbel.com and get a whole year of access to Babbel for as low as $3.50 a month. Go to babbel.com and select your language to get started. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or by making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.